while the choir is coming down. Uh, I will ask you to turn with me in your Bibles. I'm going to back up a little bit from the uh, Isaiah chapter 9. We're going to begin in uh, chapter 8, verse 11. And then we'll read on down through 9, 7. 8, 11 through 9, 7. So you'll be turning there. Before we read God's word, let's pray together. Heavenly Fathers, as we just sang, we do want to reiterate that we would we want you to be close to us. And we pray, Lord, that as we listen to your word, that you would fit us for heaven to live with you there. And Lord, we pray as we walk through a uh, the dark times in which we live, that you would help us not only for the future, but today as we seek to live for you. Lord, we pray again that you would help us to value the things that you value, and most of all, to value you above all things. Give us a renewed hope this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I've retitled my sermon as I've expanded the text to what is the Christian hope and what difference does it make? Because it's described for us here in some detail. Let's begin reading God's Word, chapter 8, verse 11. For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying... Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary, and a stone of offense, and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Bind up the testimony. Seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. And I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children with whom whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, Inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter. Should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry... They will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations." The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. 
Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in, a, in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it, with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. May God bless the reading and hearing of his holy word. Well, I grew up in a community, of course not too far from here, where many of the fathers of my classmates worked shift work, usually at Chevron and Pascagoula. In fact, my own father worked shifts for a, a very little while. Sometimes my friends would say, well, you, we can't have anyone over today. You can't come over uh, because my dad is on the night shift. And that meant that he was sleeping during the day and loud children were not allowed to be around to disturb him. Well, in Psalm 130, this type of imagery is used. And uh, that, when, when it's talking about the watchman on the, uh, on the wall uh, I understand what it means because of my own experiences with people doing shift work. Psalm 130 says this, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope, my soul waits for the Lord more than watchman for the morning. More than watchman for the morning. Now you can imagine a watchman on a city wall. Uh, they're always doing the night shift, and they're just looking out into the darkness making sure there are no threats to the city. And certainly, most nights, nothing happens. It's the night, and they're just staring out into the, into the darkness. What a boring job, sitting there, staring into the darkness, just looking. And you can imagine that by the time the night is over, the watchman is ready to leave the monotony of the city wall. One can imagine his joy when the blackness of night begins to lighten and the first rays of sunlight pierce through the shadows. Morning has arrived and it's quitting time. And I can imagine those men who are working the night shifts eager to get home and get back in their beds. And this imagery is used throughout, especially in the Psalms, to describe hope for us. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchman for the morning, more than watchman for the morning. Morning signifies hope. In Psalm 30 it says, Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. In Psalm 46, God will help her when morning dawns. There's hope in the morning. There's deliverance in the morning. Something good is coming in the morning. Well, in chapter 8 of Isaiah, we have described here for, uh, for us a people, as verse 21 says, who have no dawn. They have no morning. There's no hope. They're not, they don't have anything in their lives 
to which they can place their hope. Or, more accurately, that in which they had placed their hope was failing them. Their king was a wicked king. We talked about this last week, King Ahaz. He was under threat from other nations invading. He was taking bad advice from his advisors. He was ignoring God's word. The future for them held darkness and gloom. Verse 2 describes a land of deep darkness in chapter 9, verse 2. And that word literally means death shadow or the shadow of death. It's the same word that's used in the 23rd Psalm when it talks about walking through the valley of the shadow of death. Death was on their doorstep. It was impending, and so they were living in in anguish and gloom with no hope, no morning, no dawn, no light. Now, there were foreign invaders plotting Syria and Israel or plotting together to invade Judah. King Ahaz was thinking about asking the Assyrians for help which is the equivalent of asking the fox to guard the hen house. And he does that, and the Assyrians come in and and basically turn Judah into a vassal state. All of these threats from different kingdoms were from the north, which is why Zebulun and Naphtali and Galilee of the nations is mentioned. They were the northernmost territory of Judah, and so Assyria was coming down from the north, and that's where uh, the threat was. And they were the first to suffer the consequences of this invading Assyrian army. Very dark times, Isaiah's day. And Isaiah's times were much like ours are today. Nation under threat. People were dissatisfied with the government. Conspiracy theories abounding. Just go look at Facebook and the articles that are posted there. False religions, superstitions were gaining popularity. People were looking for answers in so many different places and so many different religions. People were turning away from God in anger, looking elsewhere for guidance such as the dead, as it mentions here, seeking uh, the, the guidance of the dead on behalf of the living. And there was economic difficulty. It speaks of hunger there in chapter 8. There was an oppressing hopelessness as people looked to the future with fear and anguish. Much like our day to day, days today, people, we, we hear often people say, well, I, I fear for my children's future. I fear for the future of this country. And there's despair. Verse 21 states, they had no dawn. There was no morning toward which they look. Do you feel like you have no morning today, no dawn? Is that in which you have placed your hope failing you? Even as Christians, we can misplace our hope. We can hope in a job promotion. We can hope in the success of our business. We can you know, look forward to that raise that we're, we're setting our sights on. We hope for a great night at the casino to turn around our fortunes, maybe. We can also hope in a a boyfriend or a girlfriend, a relationship to help us, uh, or a spouse to fulfill us. We can look at our children and and hope that they turn out and make us feel like our lives are, are worthy. Or children can look to their parents 
We can hope in the acceptance of others. If I'm just in that crowd, I'd be okay. We can hope in our health. I can just get healthy. And we can hope in the government. Wait till that next election. We can get somebody in there that knows what they're doing. Where in your life are you saying, if only? If only my party would win the election, then things would be okay. If only I could get a better job or a promotion or a raise, then my life would be great. If only my children would turn out like I want, then everything would be okay. If only I could find someone, if only I could get healthy, if only, uh, if only this and if only that, then life would be great. Well, anyone with any experience will find that it, it's, it's, a, it's a constant chase and a constant search and you never quite get there. And you will find that putting your hope in earthly things will always lead to disappointment. In fact, it will weary you because you cannot fully control any of those circumstances. If you think about life, there is very, very little that we can actually control. Very little. What is your dawn? What is your morning as you walk through the valley of the shadow of death? The only sure hope is in the one who controls everything, even the future. From where does this morning light come? The, the threat to the hope of the people in Isaiah's day came from the north in the form of this invading kingdom coming down upon them. Now, the fulfillment of the Christian hope, of course, is from this child that's described here in chapter 9. This child who was born, this son who was given, Jesus Christ. Matthew 4 tells us this prophecy uh, was about Jesus Christ. It says this in Matthew 4. Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, that's John the Baptist, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Now, before I read the next verse in Matthew 4, remember that kingdom of Assyria coming down from the north, bringing in its kingdom to conquer Judah. That was where the threat was. But here's what happens in, when Jesus came. From, you know, coming from into the north, that's where he starts his ministry. And what does he say? From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. A new kingdom is coming in, and this kingdom is invading. Jesus begins his ministry in the north, and he announces not the coming of an earthly kingdom, but the coming of the kingdom of heaven, a kingdom that will only increase, as it says in chapter 9, a kingdom that will never decrease. You know, as you look back through history and you look at all the kingdoms of the, the earth, they rise to power. And they reach that pinnacle, maybe even conquering most of the known world. You think of Rome. But at some point, they begin to decrease and lose power. But the kingdom of heaven, Christ's kingdom, will only increase. It will only become greater and greater. And it will never decrease. It will never lose its power. 
and it will be a kingdom of peace that will never end. Verse 5 of chapter 9 tells us that there will be no war. You can just go ahead and burn up all the boots and the battle clothes. No more need for them. And there will be no oppression. Verse 4, the yoke of his burden, the his there is the people of God. Uh, The yoke that holds him down, the staff that is hitting him over the shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. That's a a reference to uh, uh, Gideon, when Gideon conquered the Midianites who were oppressing uh, the people of God. Christ is going to bring an end to all oppression for his people. And it's uh, verse 7 goes on, describing this type of kingdom. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. So there will be no oppression. It will only be justice and righteousness in Christ's kingdom. Now that morning in which the Christian hope is, is is when Christ will bring in the fullness of that kingdom. It has begun to break into our world when Christ began his ministry and it is increasing and growing throughout the earth until Christ returns and brings it to its fruition. Isaiah sees this in chapter 9 and he talks about it as if it already happened. Look at, uh, listen to what uh, Alec Motier says about this verse. He says, this hope is sure. Chapter 9, 1 through 7 is couched in past tenses. The future is written as something which has already happened, for it belonged to the prophetic consciousness of men like Isaiah to cast themselves forward in time and then look back on the mighty acts of God, saying to us, look forward to it. It is certain. He has already done it. Because of this confidence, Isaiah can place the light of verse 1 of chapter 9 in immediate proximity to the darkness of 8.22. Not because it will immediately happen, but because it is immediately evident to the eye of faith. Those walking in darkness can see the light ahead and are sustained by hope. The Christian hope is in the one who is the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. Let me just break those down briefly for you. First, wonderful counselor. He's a a wonder of a counselor. The word wonder uh, denotes generally in the Bible miracles and wonders performed by God. So when it says that Jesus is a wonderful counselor, it means that his counseling skills... His wisdom is on a divine, supernatural level. Derek Thomas says, His every instruction is wonderful. His opinions are extraordinary. His recommendations are impressive. His advice is phenomenal. He is the only one worth listening to. Solomon was wise, but it was only a shadow of the wisdom that Christ possessed. Jesus, and not Solomon, is the wisdom of God as he is described in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. See, the people who walk in darkness, who have no hope, who are hoping in earthly things, they, they have no answers. They worry about conspiracy theories. They consult the dead on behalf of the living. But those who hope in Christ rest in the one who is the answer to every question and the solution to every problem. He is the mighty God, it says here. 
Jesus is, is God. He is God and man. Now Calvin writes, and this is, this is wonderful, he says, if we find in Christ nothing but the flesh and nature of man, our glorying will be foolish and vain, and our hope will rest on an uncertain and insecure foundation. If you're just hoping in a man, it's an uncertain and insecure foundation. But, Calvin goes on, if he shows himself to be to us God and the mighty God, we may now rely on him with safety. With good reason does he call him strong or mighty because our contest is with the devil, death, and sin, enemies too powerful and strong by whom we would be immediately vanquished if the strength of Christ had not rendered us invincible. Thus we learn from this title that there is in Christ abundance of protection for defending our salvation so that we desire nothing beyond him for he is God who is pleased to show himself strong on our behalf. When your hope is in the mighty God, you know, why hope in humans? We have God on our side. Hoping in humans and their kingdoms is resting in something that's very weak and tenuous. It only leads to fear and dread because humans will always let you down and earthly powers will fail. Jesus conquered even death. So we don't even have to fear dying. We will live forever. And that takes us to the next title, Everlasting Father. Now this is not to be confused with the title of the first person of the Godhead. Uh, it, it literally means Father of Eternity or the Author of Eternity. Christ holds eternity in His hands. He controls the future. And when we set our hopes in the, the next president or the next leader, we're putting our our trust and our hope in someone who is mere mortal, who doesn't actually control anything. You know, as much bluster as they can manage in their speeches and debates about what they're going to do and what they're going to change, like we said before, they control very little. There's so many factors that humans can't control. Human leaders cannot control really anything. But we have one who controls the future, who controls every atom in the universe who controls time into eternity. Trusting in him leads to, not to despair or darkness, but to true peace, which is why he's called the Prince of Peace or the Commander of Peace. Peace of conscience, peace with God. Only these things can be obtained through Christ. Setting your hope in earthly things is a sure way to never have true peace. Never have any certainty about the future. Only comes through Christ. And of course, he's secured that through the cross. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is peace with God between God and man because Jesus Christ is the mediator who has brought the two opposing parties together in himself. Prince of Peace. We need to hear this this Christmas because, you know, we place our hope in so many things, even as Christians, as I said before. We can place our hopes in many of the things that we're involved in our, in our lives. But I want to renew your hope in Christ this Christmas. See, the devil is constantly throwing things at us through suggestion, through advertisements on TV. If you just had this, then your life would be great. 
and we think, if I just could get to this place in my life, in my career, in my finances, in my health, then everything would be great. And so you're constantly reaching and pursuing and trying and trying, and you never get there. Now, people who are older, who've had more experience, figure this out. You know, young people are full of hope about the future, and they think, you know, I'm going to get a job, get married, have a children, have a family, and live happily ever after. And those of us who are older will say, yes, there's a lot of joy in that, and that's wonderful, but you're going to get disappointments along the way. It's going to be difficult. Uh, even marriage, as wonderful as that is, it's difficult because you're two sinners living together. It's hard. You have to work it out. It's never easy. The only time when things will become easy and at peace is when Christ returns and sets up his eternal kingdom of peace. See, Satan holds that carrot out there, the earthly things that we think can satisfy us, and we keep reaching for it, and we waste our lives pursuing something that we'll never get or that will never fulfill us. It's only when we put our hope in Christ that we don't have to fear death, because when we die, like Paul said, for me, for me to live as Christ, to die as gain, because I'm going to be with him in his kingdom forever. But that's the only place to put your hope, and it's by grace. You'll notice that God has done this. The last statement, the zeal of the Lord of hosts has done this. He, he's the one that's accomplished all this for us. Unto us a son is given. We didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. He came pursuing us to give us hope so we can only receive him by grace. To just turn to him. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son Whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already, dwelling in darkness, in the shadow of death. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed. In the name of the only Son of God, the wonderful Counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. Where is your hope today? What is your mourning? What are you looking forward to? Where is your if only? There is no if only if, if it's with Christ because you know that your future is secure. You know that whatever you're pursuing, uh, if you're pursuing Him, you know that you will reach that goal. It is secure. It is it is the sound place to place your faith only in Christ. Run to him today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word, this wonderful promise. And Lord, give us the eyes of faith to be able to see, put that, that ray of light into our, our minds and in our hearts. And Lord, give us a, a deeper faith. Lord, we believe, help our unbelief as the man prayed in the Gospel of Mark. Lord, help us to, to live our lives in light of your coming kingdom, to live for that kingdom, not for earthly kingdoms or earthly treasures or whatever it is we might put before you. Help us to see the value of who you are and what you've done for us and what you're going to do for your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.